You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. To the chasers of light, to the purveyors of pictures, to everybody listening around the world, this is the F11 Photography Podcast. And joining me, your co-host, Mr. Brandon Gorey. Hey everyone, it's great to be back, feeling alive, chasing that light, and uh, today we're chasing more light with a guest. Absolutely. So uh, what we were talking about in the first two episodes is we would do episodes based off of uh, genres of photography. And you probably don't want to just listen to us talk about ourselves all the time. I know I don't want to listen to myself talk about myself all the time. So we figured it would be better for you, the listener, if we brought in guests to the show. And we are going to do a we are going to bring in a guest today from the Washington, D.C. area. So we're going to bring in Jordan Groby, who is a communication coordinator for IMP. He uh, works for the 930 Club, the Anthem, the Lincoln Theater, and the Mayweather Post Pavilion. Uh, Everybody give a warm welcome to Jordan Groby. How's it going, man? Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Hey, no problem, no problem. And uh, Jordan's joining us remotely today. Uh, So uh, we're testing this uh, connection out, and so far, so good. Uh, But yes, uh, so Jordan, you uh, live in the Washington, D.C. area, correct? I do. Been here almost 10 years now. Now, uh, what is your story? I always always, uh, open up every interview with the same thing, which is tell us your story, tell us how you got into photography. Well, I've, I've got a bit of a long one. Um, but I can try to wind it into the photography story, which is a bit shorter. Um, the long story short is that I knew that I wanted to work, uh, in the music industry and I didn't know, uh, what form that was going to take, but I knew pretty early on that I would not be the one on stage. Um, from there in high school, I actually started producing some concerts locally. Um, I'm from White Plains, New York originally. And, uh, the actual management and production side of things seemed to be pretty interesting to me for concerts. So that was the angle that I started to take. I was looking at schools that had event management degrees, um, ended up going to George Washington university. They have a a business degree in sport event and hospitality management. And you can concentrate in one of the three. I focused on event management, figured having a generalized business degree would help me down the line if I ever needed it. And uh, that's what brought me to Washington, D.C. I, going in, didn't know that the music scene here was as robust as it is. Um, kind of tripped and fell into that and, and got very lucky in the sense that the 930 Club is um, one of the greatest clubs in the world. And it's not just me saying that. It's won so many awards from Polestar, which is the uh, industry magazine that those awards get voted on by artists, by managers, by tour folks, everyone up and down the chain. 
Uh, so I'm very lucky to have landed where I did. Um, started out as an intern, worked my way up through door staff, and now I've been doing this full time for about six years. Speaking of what you do, we've seen those memes like uh, what my friends think I do, what my parents think I do, and what I actually do. Uh, So being a concert photographer, let's get that out of the way real quick for the beginners who might be Mm -hmm. listening to this podcast and think, oh, yeah, concert photography, that sounds uh, amazing. I'll bet you uh, uh, he gets to like go hang out with the band and be there during the entire set and go wherever he wants on stage and, and just can like get up there and take pictures of them and their faces. And it's not a big, you could free reign to go wherever you want. That That's not how it works. Is it? No. Um, your goal is to be as inobtrusive as possible. Uh, you are a fly on the wall capturing the experience on behalf of the fans and on behalf of the band and on behalf of the venue Um, anything that you do that gets in between the band and the audience experience is going to be a problem. Uh, the majority of concert photographers are approved on the publicist side and they're granted what is normally industry standard first three songs of the set from the barricade. Um, what that means is you're in that little wedged area that's in front of the stage before the crowd begins. And you've got those first three songs to get any of the shots that you need and then get out. Um, no flash, nothing that's going to be distracting for you or for the people behind you. Um, common courtesy states that if you're a tall guy, you're going to be crouching down to try not to block the people in the front row, but everyone just does the best they can. You're also not thrusting your camera way up above your head and blocking the view of people behind you or blocking the artist's view of the people behind you. Um, you're really just kind of there to observe and to capture the essence of what's going on in front of you. How often do you actually get to talk to the bands that you you, you photograph? Probably close to never, right? Yeah, so as a concert photographer, the answer to that question would be never. Um, I, in my other duties as the communications coordinator, I'm occasionally responsible for kind of being the interplay between any on-site media organization and the artists. Say if like CBS was coming in and doing an interview between an artist um but that's it used to be more frequent before the pandemic it hasn't happened as frequently since um the only exception on the concert photography side would be if you get hired by the artist um so i've done one show so far where i've been hired separately by the artist um and even in that case i didn't actually get to meet the band um i just met their tour manager afterwards but the few concert photographers that are lucky enough to be hired to go out on the road with a band where they're covering that artist every single night of the whole tour, um, they will typically be interacting with the band and befriend the band and and be more behind those closed doors um, because they're traveling with them. You know, they're living with them on the road for those couple of weeks. And uh, a lot of the times those artists have also brought them on board because they want those sort of behind the scenes shots that they're just going to keep for themselves privately um, to remember those days on the road and share with their family and friends. That's awesome, man. Um, I got a question for you. uh, Being in Austin, Texas, you know, it's, you know, some people even say it's the live music capital of the world. Um, I'm from Southern California, so that's still up to debate or up for debate for me. But we got a lot of guys, a lot of photographers here who are starting in concert photography. And 
after going after looking at your work, I had a question uh, regarding your approach to um, how you take the photos and how you color them. So when you when you're taking these photos of the concerts, do you tend to more stay towards the natural and the the organic feel of the stage itself, or is there a personal statement that you you tend to make on your photos? That's a great question. Um, there's sort of a wide spectrum of what concert photographers in general tend to do. Um, there are the people that we sort of refer to as the documentarians, sort of like the typical Getty photographer, where uh, their goal is the most accurate white balance possible. Um, so they're kind of looking for either the most accurate tone for what was happening or the most accurate skin tone. Um, sometimes the most accurate tone can be unfavorable to the skin tone. That's when you get really washed out performers. Um, and then other times the most accurate just kind of makes the stage look uninteresting. Um, and then on the other end, you've got folks that will kind of play around with the color schemes of the stage lights, however they please, um, and go sort of monochromatic, do whatever they'd like with those creative choices. And that's perfectly cool too. Um, I myself, I try to take the lighting that's in the scene already and just emphasize it. Um, so very little of what I'm doing in post in general, I'm doing very little in post. Um, but what I am doing is I'm sort of adding saturation and adding some contrast essentially just to, to further deepen the mood of what's happened in front of me. Um, an example of that is that like a lot of concert photographers get scared of red light. Um, red light can be really tricky to work with. And then a lot of cases, the photographer will just kind of flip it into black and white because that's the easiest answer. Sure. Um, if you're looking for like an accurate skin tone and you've got red light, you're not going to find it. <laughs> and I think that's why some people get nervous about it. Um, for me, I just lean in and you can see on my, on my page, on my Instagram, on my website, um, there's a lot of red stage light because artists love that and it looks good in the room. Um, and I, I just lean into it. I embrace it. So, so what you're telling me is you never went through a phase where you went high HDR, black and white, because <laughs> you just couldn't handle the salmon. Is that what you're trying to say? I've never done uh, high HDR anything. I've never, I, I actually, I shy away from black and white. Um, Kevin knows this. My style itself is kind of about the colors in the scene. Um, a lot of the times that I do transition to black and white, I do it extremely intentionally and it's in a way that sort of captures like an old school film grittiness to it. So like if I'm going to plan a shot in black and white, then I'll flip my settings down to like one sixtieth of a second to get a little bit of motion blur. And I'll bake in some of that like film grain, um, maybe crank the ISO if I have to. Uh, and then you get, you know, a very cool kind of raw punk look to it that feels familiar instead of, you know, just sort of like a change that you made in post. Um, looking at your work, you do an outstanding job of mirroring the energy of the bands that you cover. And I think you definitely fall into the latter category. Uh, I think a lot of the work that you do is more creative and you're not just a Getty Images type of photographer. You're definitely trying to capture that vibe. What's your process? Because I know you listen to music. You're like me. You're really into music. Um, what's the process of how you prepare yourself for bands that you shoot uh, and, you know, do you do 
I mean, obviously, if a band that you're really into is coming to town, you're already super familiar with their catalog. But do you try to immerse yourself? And I, I know you cover so many venues, you probably can't do everybody. But do you immerse your, try to immerse yourself in the bands that are coming to town because you have the concert calendar in front of you? And do you try to kind of figure out what their vibe is and how to translate that onto your camera when you're capturing them? For sure. Um, so we have a team of house photographers that I'm in charge of, which is how I got into photography in the first place. Um, after observing them for long enough, I figured I'd give it a shot. Um, I shot my first show in uh, August of 2019. That was a Brian Ferry from Roxy Music. But so essentially, I'm not covering every show and I'm not covering typically shows that I myself am not familiar with. Um, so that means that I do have an emotional connection to the artist and I do sort of understand where they're coming from and where their audience is coming from. I think the best imagery will always come from a photographer that feels that way about the artist. Um, I think in general, it's hard for someone who is creating something to express an emotion or to properly capture a moment, um, if they themselves aren't feeling it. And then as far as translating what I'm seeing through the imagery, the most important thing for me is not necessarily listening to the music itself kind of in the run-up to the event, although I do. But the, the research that I do beforehand, if I do any, is looking up kind of like, what are their three songs that they're playing in the beginning? So I know what the vibe is going to be. I know what to expect. I know kind of where I'd like to be for those songs. And if I can, if they've been on the road playing those songs already, um, I'll look them up on YouTube and I'll see what the actual lighting setup is. I'll see what the actual stage setup is. Um, you know, cause sometimes you're going to want to get shots of, uh, I don't know. So, so I was photographing the smile and you obviously love and know Radiohead and that whole crew. And so Johnny Greenwood, you want to make sure you're capturing the guitarist. Right. And so you're going to want to figure out where the guitarist is standing on stage and, if there's a solo in one of those first three songs, you want to know where to be when that solo comes up. All of those sorts of like pre-planning things that you're just kind of reviewing in advance if you can. But then at the same time, the second you get into that pit, you kind of forget everything else and you're just in it for those nine minutes. Um, but you do sort of try to prepare yourself as best as you can. Yeah, uh, I saw that the smile, the Tom York, Johnny Greenwood project, uh, shared your image on their Instagram page, so congratulations on that. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. We are talking about bands allowing you to shoot for the first three songs and all that. How many bands have you run across that have a no photography policy? Definitely happens. Um, it's not all the time. I would say maybe 15%, 20% of artists. Um, it is growing a little bit post-COVID. Um, I think that some artists are leaning into having their own photographers, and at that point, they don't see the need in having others. Certainly right after COVID, there were people that were just being cautious of having anybody foreign to them in the barricade, you know, two feet in front of them, which is completely fair. Um, we've seen some shoots shift from that barricade position to the soundboard position where you're sort of at the back of the room. Um, and that is a dual purpose. You know, people have been doing that for years anyway, whether that's you want to get 
photos of the entire stage experience rather than just one person on stage. Um, they want to highlight the production that's going on behind them, that sort of thing. Um, but generally speaking, people are still pretty friendly and open to having photographers. Um, there's kind of a misconception too about why people before used to prevent photographers from having access. Um, and I think that we have to remember and consider that these musicians are just people too. Um, and a lot more of them are probably suffering from some degree of stage fright every night than we would know or believe. And so having a camera in your face for those first three songs, when you're first getting settled into your performance can be anxiety inducing. Um, and there are just a lot of artists that see us as an obstruction between them and their front row fans. Um, so I think we have to, you know, always be respectful of the artist and understand where they're coming from on those points. Yeah. That reminds me, um, the first time I ever became aware of a no photography policy, I was, uh, at the Austin music hall in 2000 and a perfect circle, uh, you know, the side project demanded James Keenan of tool. They were coming to Austin for the first time. They were touring with nine inch nails and they got so big that summer that nine inch nails was like, yeah, you should probably just go out on your own because you guys are blowing up. And so the thing was, is they only had one album and uh, just side side tracking here for a second, but basically they played their album and then they were done. They're like, yeah, that's it. Um, you know, usually, so they like took uh, the they took Cure's love song and put the lyrics of Diary of a Madman from Ozzy Osbourne over it. And they're like, that's our other song. But anyway, uh, at that show, like that was the first time I would ever become aware of a no camera policy. And of course, this is two thousand. There were no smartphones. Everybody was shooting on film. I mean, so, you know, there's a lot of, mm-hmm. hopefully a lot of intention behind the, sh- the shots. But basically his thing was like, look, man, and he stopped the show. He's like, here's why we have a no camera policy. Years from now, you're going to lose the pictures that you took today. And you were so busy taking pictures. You're not going to have any memories of this show. You know, mm-hmm. like get into the experience, immerse yourself in what we're trying to do here. And that, uh, that was like the first time I became aware of it. I was like, wow, I have a lot of respect for that. And uh, it mm-hmm. sounds like you do too. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm just here. I'm part of, you know, I, it sounds like what you're saying is a good uh, concert photographer though, when they actually are able to do it is they should be, they should kind of like make you feel like you're in the crowd, right? Like you're experiencing everything. Yeah, that's that's my goal at least when I'm when I'm taking photos of the concert is to be capturing the crowd's uh position and their experience. Um but I definitely appreciate where they're coming from with that too because uh in a way having only those three songs is a weight off of our shoulders. Um because sometimes there are photo policies that say first three songs from the barricade and then you can shoot the rest of the show from the rest of the room totally fine. Um, and I love those shows. I get some really, really great shots from those that are some of my favorites that have like the whole room shown, or it's just a different perspective on the stage production. Um, but at the same time, it does detract from my ability to kind of pause and appreciate what's going on in front of me. Uh, cause I am buried in my camera the rest of the show. So for that same reason that, uh, Maynard was talking about, Uh, You have people now that are also encouraging like no cell phone shows and just living in the moment. Um, And I think there are also a lot of bands out there that like don't want there to be a physical thumbprint of what happened that night. 
So maybe the idea of not documenting anything is also interesting to some of those performers. Well, the cell phone one is absolutely uh, annoying uh, because mm-hmm. people are sitting there like Instagramming it up instead of enjoying the show. And that's annoying because I'm paying good money for it. But then <laughs> the funny one, uh, you know, showing my age is the everybody using the cell phone, uh, <laughs> the cell phone flashlight as their lighter. <laughs> back back when I back yeah. when I was back when I was a kid, we'd light up a heater and then and then we'd we'd put our our, our lighter in the air to you know tell them, so you know you'd be getting lung cancer at the same time. So it was great. <laughs> it was just all a part of the experience. But that's mm-hmm. that's actually an interesting point you bring up is because in concert photography, you know, there is its own art to capturing the crowd and. To you know, because the crowd is is a reflection of the performance. You know, they they exist in a symbiotic relationship photographically, and mm-hmm. so I I'm wondering, I'm just curious, like how has the the smartphone thing, you know, people just constantly recording, has that changed the way you shoot, or or have have you not really given so much attention to the crowd to begin with? I, I don't think it changes that much how I shoot. Um, the only time I really notice it, because they're typically behind me if they're in the barricade, so they're not in my way or anything like that. Um, the only time I'll notice it is if I'm doing a soundboard shoot and uh, all of the crowd has their phones up. <laughs> and so suddenly, you know, all of us as photographers are aware that the eye is naturally gravitating toward the lightest part of an image. And when you're taking a concert photograph, uh, everything is normally very dark except for the stage and the performer. Uh, but now if you're all the way in the back of the room and you've got a thousand cell phones up in the air in front of you, that's a lot of little points of light that are distracting. Um, so I do occasionally find myself having to like clone those out afterward in Photoshop. If it's the right image that I think warrants it and I can just blend it into the shadows of the crowd. Um, but other times, that's kind of the point of the image, is seeing everyone being that excited for that moment. Um, so it just depends. But I, I don't think that it's really affected how I shoot in the moment. Right, right. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking through your work here, and I love your work, by the way. Um, Thank and, you. And I just wanted, I wanted to ask, like, kind of like a specific question, because I'm curious. Um, working as a concert photographer, it's, it's very different from all other genres of photography because you get very, very familiar with high ISO and that just, you know, it mm-hmm. kind of becomes your bread and butter. And so with that, you know, you probably have a lot of insight on, on, you know, how that ISO at, at different settings is going to influence the overall shot because, you know, of course a stage is a very dynamic place to shoot and it's happening very quickly. So, you know, when you're shooting, are there ever times where, you decide to bump up the ISO or rather shoot it darker and be happy with lifted blacks or, or something of that nature. Like does that decision ever come across your way? Yeah, for sure. Um, I had to learn pretty early on, uh, you know, what those trade-offs on that exposure triangle were really going to be, um, and what my technical limitations were going to be on my camera, what my, um, perceived limitations were going to be. Cause obviously the camera can go to ISO 52,500, but under what conditions would I feel comfortable going there? Right. Um, and I, I have had to actually do that on one or two occasions. Um, and that's when I would throw it completely into the black and white because the grain there is okay, but it ruins the color completely. Um, but for the most part, 
uh, Kevin knows this. So Kevin and I met on Clubhouse and we had all of these in-depth photography discussions and there were some photo challenges that were posed. Um, and it was through those creative photo challenges uh, that I really learned the complete limitations of my camera and what it could do and what I would accept it doing. Um, and that meant that kind of in the moment, I knew the ins and outs. I knew what every dial did. I knew what every button would do. Um, I knew what every setting was for. And, and that allows me to prep my equipment in advance of a show and then be able to, to really transition based on any lighting situation. And so you will have some shows where, you know, it's a singer songwriter sitting on a stool and there's one light key light behind them and you can make that work. Uh, Cause at that point he's not moving that much. You can maybe lower your shutter speed down. Um, I've also started doing some more creative uh, angles where you know, I do shutter drags and things of that nature. Um, and I started doing those as a result of being forced into some shitty lighting situations where I knew that uh, my options were either shoot at, you know, ISO 12,800, or it was really lower my shutter speed as far down as I could manage it and use that to my advantage. Um, so for some of those shoots and shows, I'll go down to one eighth of a second and do a shutter drag because that's letting in all of this lovely light um, and then I don't need to crank my ISO as high. Um, I used that a lot when I was shooting soundboard shoots because my telephoto uh, to start out with was an F6.7. So compare that to a lot of people that are shooting concerts exclusively around F1.4 or F2, and now you're losing four or five stops of light. But all of those things are, are trade-offs. You know, the people that are shooting at 1.4 are risking having a shot that's more blurry than they'd anticipated because either they got the focus right, but it was on the artist's nose and not on their eye, um, or they kind of missed it entirely. Um, so, you know, all of these depth of field considerations and light considerations and ISO considerations, they definitely all come into play and we're all just sort of doing the best we can within what is essentially an eight minute window to capture what you need to capture. Right. And you mentioned um, meeting Kevin at Clubhouse, and that's where you really learned the limitations of your camera. Um, for for viewers listening or for anyone listening who would love to learn or wants to become more familiar with their camera in that way, is there any specific exercise or any, any practice that you'd recommend to them? 100%. Um, so I had been shooting for a year at this point already. And, you know, I, I thought that I was pretty comfortable with my gear and, and with my vision. Um, and at this point, everything was closed. We were deep in the pandemic. And um, this creative challenge was posed that was to take 500 photographs of one single subject with one single light source, with one single lens, with no advanced research and no editing afterwards. Um, what that pushes you to do is to fully, um, analyze the scene in front of you, figure out how you can control and use that light source to your advantage. Um, and then lets you explore really every single function of your camera, because when you've removed every other sort of externality, the only things left to play around with 
are the camera, your creative eye, uh, and the light source. And for me, I'd never intentionally lit a subject before. When I'm doing concert photography, I've got no control over the scene in front of me. I'm just a bystander. And, uh, you know, I do landscape photography. And whenever you do landscape photography, you also have no control over the subject in front of you or the lighting. It's just the sun or the moon and the world in front of you. Um, so for me, having this was a great lighting exercise. It allowed me to figure out how to pose a quote-unquote subject. The subject in my series was an apple. Um, but it, it allowed me to explore where lighting comes from, how it affects shadows and angles and depth and dimensionality. Um, but then through all of that, it also allowed me to really figure out what my camera could do and what I could do with a single lens. Um, a lot of people when they're in the barricade will only use one lens because they feel uncomfortable switching. Um, in a weird way, me becoming so familiar with one specific lens um, and learning how to use that and only use that pushed me to do the opposite. And when I'm in the barricade, I switch between six or seven lenses because I'm indecisive and I have Jeez. a clear vision of what I'm looking for in the moment. Um, but at the same time, I think that that's some, it's one of the things that sets my work apart, I think, because I get different angles and perspectives that other photographers aren't grabbing because they're only using their 24 to 70. Um, that was the Apple challenge proposed by Michael Lee, who was an amazing commercial photographer yes. out of Hong Kong. Thank you, Kevin. And you didn't tell everybody that you won the challenge. <laughs> and you did. Yes. Yeah. And did. that you're going that up true. against some pretty awesome photographers. So, uh, yeah. and didn't you 500 make... images, uh, when you get through the first 50 or so you hit a wall and you just got to keep going. Yeah, that's you, that's you, the point. Didn't you turn it into a book? I did. Um, I have a photo book that I've made out of those top 50 images of the 500. Um, and I've also put them in a digital gallery. You can kind of walk through and see them all together and experience it as, uh, in my opinion, as I intended them to be observed. It's cool to kind of view them on a screen next to each other. Um, but it, it, I feel like it makes a lot more sense when you appreciate each individually and then kind of pass on and see the next one and figure out what was kind of going through my head in the moment. Um, and they're all numbered at the end of the book, so you can figure out uh, what stretches of creativity worked and then which really didn't. Because um, you're going to have that if you do this experience on your own. You're going to have a series of 20 shots that uh, you had an idea and you love that idea and you're expanding on that idea. And then you're going to have other ideas that were just absolute garbage and you're going to skip the next 100 photos that you took. And the, none of those are going to be your highlight reel. Um, and I think life and Instagram is like that too. You know, We're only seeing those best images that we end up taking. We're only seeing on my Instagram, I'm only sharing three or four images from a show on my website. I'm sharing maybe a hundred, um, but I'm taking 500, you know, so what is happening with all the others? Well, they were good, but they weren't good enough. And, uh, that's part of the experience too. To the recycling bin they go. Uh, Hey, that's, you only show your best work, right? Exactly. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. 
I want to keep the focus on equipment because I've gotten into, this will be, I think, the fifth episode as we have this uh, scheduled for releases. Outside of talking about a Holga camera, which is a piece of crap, uh, we have really kept the conversations <laughs> away from gear, which is what I'm always like mm-hmm. chomping at the bit to talk about. <laughs> yes. You shoot, yes. You're a gearhead, yeah. I am a gearhead. Uh, yes, I'll never be happy. I keep buying equipment. Um, you the gas shoot, is real. yes, the gas is real, and we're we're actually going to do a full episode on that. But um, you shoot on a Fuji XT3, and. What I want to know, because I know you shoot on a Fuji X-T3, and I know a lot of times you'll introduce an anamorphic lens. And, you you know, anamorphic lenses, which are typically for cinema, you'll use them in your concert photography. Tell me a bit about your gear choices, how you arrived at why you use, you know, Fuji, which is an APS-C camera, um, and a good APS-C camera, I might add, and uh, your lens choices. Go ahead. So what originally drew me to Fuji... Um, is the color science. And as you can tell by looking at my work, I love the colors of the scene, the saturation of the scene. And that's one of the main things that I use to tell the story of what's going on. And um, so that's what drew me to them originally, in addition to the fact that I you know, love the tactile feel of the dials on top. Um, I love the compact size. I look over when I'm in the barricade waiting to enter and see you know, all of the other folks that are using DSLRs and these gigantic heavy lenses, um, and I don't envy them. <laughs> uh, it's also the thing that allows me to have that flexibility in the barricade in terms of switching lenses constantly uh, is the lenses themselves are tiny. So I can fit six or seven in my bag and not be taking up space, not be straining my back, um, and I still have that flexibility of choice. From there, the lenses that I, that I choose to shoot with, I like having a unique frame of reference and I like the imperfections when you have a perfectly sharp image that's just rendered cleanly I don't know it it just doesn't do it for me in the same way that like a vintage lens does or an anamorphic lens does I like things that are in a way distorting what's in front of me and kind of bringing out the imperfections because the performance isn't perfect and it doesn't need to be and um, when I'm telling that story, I kind of want it to feel like you're not detached, but um, viewing it through more of a cinematic lens than if you were viewing it through a documentary lens. Um, I love National Geographic, but that's not where I'd go for my concert photography uh, imp- impulses. And when you're watching a film, there are sort of all of those imperfections, largely because of the anamorphic lenses that a lot of them use, but also just because when you're racking focus and all of those things, nailing it isn't what matters, it's the scene that matters. And when you're thinking about all the photography that you've seen in your life that was film photography, it's the scene that matters because the, the shots themselves are not perfectly crisp. The film is not rendering things perfectly, crisply, and accurately. Um, And a lot of them were taken using manual focus, so they're going to miss slightly. Um, I also think that when you stop obsessing over perfect focus um, and you start appreciating the scene for what it is, then uh, you can stop getting overexcited about getting like the left eye in focus 
when the rest of the scene's composition isn't right. Um, and it, it's it's sort of taking a step back and appreciating all of it as a whole rather than nitpicking. And I still, I, I do obsess and I still, you know, pixel peep constantly. Um, but there's a difference between it being perfectly sharp and it being sharp enough, uh, especially if you're only viewing it on Instagram. Um, but all that being said, the different lenses was I got a Helios 44.2, which is a historic yeah. portrait lens from the 70s. Um, and it, it just renders things so damn beautifully. And unlike literally anything else that I've seen. Um, you like that, uh, that F2 swirl? Yeah. And like <laughs> once, I, once I found that lens, I found that there was just nothing like it. Um, the, the way that the fall off is gradual, but still distinct, um, to that, to what I was saying earlier, you can take a picture where the left eye is in focus, um, but it doesn't fall off too quickly, which is important for concert photography, where if you're shooting at 1.4 and it's behaving like 1.4, then everything outside of that perfect sharp image is going to be out of focus. Um, and you need the whole face to be relatively in focus, not just the eye. Um, but it's also just like the way that the corners aren't that important because the focus of the scene should be the musician in the center of the frame. Um, it, taking a concert picture is sort of a weird combination of street photography, portrait photography, landscape photography. It's sort of everything wrapped together because you're just an observer things in front of you are moving very quickly. Uh, it's dark. And then at the same time, you're highlighting a person, usually. Um, sometimes you're highlighting the entire stage and the entire scene, and then crisp edge to edge does matter. Um, but if you're doing that, then you really need a wide angle lens, especially for some of these stages, which can be very small and very up close. Um, so for the most part, if you're capturing what the crowd is seeing, they're focusing on like one person on stage at a time. And that's where your eye is able to go. Your eye is only able to appreciate one subject at a time. So if you're taking a picture, you can bounce between subjects. But um, I like to focus on one, and I don't mind if the edges swirl to the degree that now one of my other favorite lenses um, is a Mir 1B, which is essentially the little cousin to the Helios 44.2. The Helios is a 58 millimeter f2. The Mir is a 37 millimeter f2.8, and the Mir is constructed in such a way that it's really easy to just unscrew the front piece of glass and flip it over. And when you do that, the center stays sharp, but everything outside gets really crazy. Like the bokeh is just extreme, um, and it leads all of your attention right to that middle subject. And it can be tricky to, to frame properly and get it right in the same way that using any manual focus lens for a fast-moving subject can be. And you'll get a lot of misses. Um, but the hits that you get are going to be way worth it. You know, I have a bunch of old Minolta lenses that I have adapters to put to my Fuji, adapters to put to my Canon. I even have adapters to put to my Fuji GFX. And I think the appeal to me about those those lenses is that you're taking two things that weren't meant to work together. They weren't designed to work together and you're mm -hmm. seeing what you can create with it. And because it's outside of the perfection that the camera manufacturers are going for, 
Um, you know, they obviously are designing the lens and the body to be perfect with one another. And this is mm-hmm. not perfect. And that's kind of where we can dive into art, right? Mm-hmm. So. For sure. And it's also for me, I mean, some of it was strategic in the sense that I knew that getting a vintage lens would allow me to have sort of a two-in-one because um, you have a dumb adapter, which is just you know the piece of metal that separates it far enough from the camera that you get the same proper frame of focus that you used to on a full-frame vintage camera. But then you can also swap it for a focal reducer. And like you were saying before, I am on a crop sensor camera, and a lot of people will ask me why or complain that, you know, oh, well, a crop sensor means that all of your lenses aren't being fully appreciated or your bokeh is not as vocalicious as it could be, (laughs) um, or you're just not getting quite as much light as you need. Um, And I don't think that any of that is particularly true. For one thing, the amount of light hitting the sensor is the same. Um, Maybe you are getting a little bit less bokeh, but again, for me, I'm not all about that severe subject separation. Um, But what I am looking for is a way to gain more light, which is what a focal reducer does for you. It doubles the amount of light coming into the lens, uh, giving you a a great stop. And um, it also means that I have two lenses in one. Now, I can't swap between those adapters in the middle of a pit, but it means that I can look at where the stage is and where the band is on it and decide, okay, well, do I need what will effectively be a 58 millimeter lens tonight or would I prefer an 85 millimeter lens tonight? And if I use it as a 58, then it's basically a 58 1.4. Whereas if I use it as an 85, then it's an 85 F2. Um, And having that flexibility just by having a tiny adapter in my bag is also really nice and helpful and gives you two lenses for the price of one. Yeah, I think I think I should also mention that the the mirror is you know obviously released in the Soviet Union. Uh, the word mirror translates to both peace and the world. So being that that was probably one of the widest lenses that the Soviet Union released in that time, there's probably a little play on words that you could see the entire world with that lens. There you go. Brandon has a degree. In uh, Eastern European and uh, Russian s- studies. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a, it's so, a hobby now. He, he could do this interview in Russian if he really wanted to. You just look like a dog being shown a card trick. Like, what did you just say? But yeah, yeah. The lenses. Well, the thing out. about a lot of those lenses is they were constructed in modern day Ukraine, um, so they are harder to come by now than they used to be two years ago, unfortunately. But yeah, Ukraine. Uh, apparently, Ukrainian steel is what was in the uh, the twin towers as well. They were really good uh, metal workers. Yep, and it's it's well constructed. These things are tanks, except that the towers fell. No, I'm not going in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. I'm not going to the conspiracy theorist stuff. We're not we're not the Joe Rogan podcast. No, um, <laughs> not yet, at least. Um, awesome. So, obviously, you do concert photography, but what other genres of photography do you love to shoot? Not, I mean, obviously not for money, because that's pretty much what you're doing the concert photography for, but if you just said, go out and shoot, what are you going to go shoot? Well, so I will pause you there, uh, because the money side of concert photography is fairly non-existent. <laughs> so so you're, you're um, talking to a couple of editorial photographers, go on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it is essentially the same. You're also achieving sort of the same uh, purpose. You're shooting for publications at that point. Um, 
the the time of being paid by an outlet to cover a show has unfortunately mostly passed. There are a few that still do, and those are very cherished, but also hard to come by. Um, but for the most part, you're covering for you know your internet blogs, um, et cetera, et cetera, and and those are not paying you. Um, the typical deal slash trade is uh, you are covering the show, and in exchange for that, you're receiving two tickets. So uh, you yourself get to enjoy the rest of the show when you're done shooting, and then you also get to bring a friend. Um, and then other than that, you have the opportunity to capture what you otherwise would not have the opportunity to capture. Um, there is endless debate over how fair that is. It would be nice if we were compensated for the expertise and the equipment. Um, but as it stands, you know, these are extremely high demand situations. And so it is a luxury and a privilege to be allowed to cover them. Um, and so at this point, most of it just comes through that perspective. So um, if a up and coming uh, photographer is listening to this podcast right now and they're wanting to get into concert photography. Uh, are you saying that they should be discouraged if they want to make money or are there avenues like maybe getting hired by the band or what are, what are some ways that they could get into the style of photography or is it mainly like, Hey, your, your events you're going to go shoot are like parties and weddings and things like that. And then you'll do this for fun. There are definitely avenues um, to a career in concert photography, but must, much like any other form of photography, uh, you've really got to grind at it in order to see those results. Um, you know, you can't just pick up a camera and start making big money doing portraits. You can't just pick up a camera and start doing weddings. Um, you've got to build your network of connections. You've got to really build your portfolio and show what you can do. Um, and there is a path forward for you if you're going to be working on behalf of the artists and on behalf of the labels, et cetera. Um, but it, it is a harder path to take and it does often require travel. Um, and then there's also the licensing branch of things where you can make some money. Um, but all of that sort of depends and the competition in this space um, is very high. The, the unfortunate reality is like in any other form of business, you're going to be undercut by the people that are doing it for less. And in this field, most of it is being done for free. So until there's a photographer's union, <laughs> there may not be a way of, of really making sure that everyone gets compensated fairly, but there are musicians, there are labels, there are managers, there are venues um, that are trying to make it as equitable as possible. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Speaking of licensing and people using images for free, uh, have you ever had an experience where somebody has used your images without your permission, uh, maybe on a social media feed or something like that? I have. Um, you know I know the, the story. Most, <laughs> yeah, the, the most notable... Uh, example is there was a hotel that was opening somewhere in California. Um, 
they had an affiliation and that they were just nearby to some uh, NASA facility. And I had a video of the countdown clock from the Kennedy Space Center, um, counting down from 10 to 9 to 8 to 7, et cetera, and then launch. Um, and that was set to the launch countdown audio from the Apollo 11 mission. Um, they lifted that from my Instagram account and they used it on theirs as what was, I think the third or fourth post they'd ever had on social media because they were just a brand new hotel and, uh, they're not a chain. They were an independent branch. Um, it was not done out of greed. It was just done out of ignorance as much of these uses tend to be. Um, but at the same time, there's not a whole lot of recourse, unfortunately. Um, Kevin and I had different perspectives on, on how to handle these situations sometimes. I believe Kevin's methodology is to go tell them to fuck off. And uh, that and that's familiar. the end of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. That sounds like um, me. I tend to use it as an opportunity to get my foot in the door with whomever he's using the image. Um in the nice. hopes that they have something to offer, or at the very least with the understanding that they didn't mean to do harm. Um, if there's really nothing and they're just sort of like a fan club, then, you know, I'm honored that they're using my imagery, but I could tell them to take it down. One, I know that one um, of the things that we talked about was, hey, you're a, you're a hotel that's opening up. Maybe you can buy some of my prints and put them on your wall and yes. use that as an opportunity. So Did that turn I tried. Out? I tried to spin this into an opportunity as they were a new facility that certainly needed artwork. Um, unfortunately, by the time they used my piece, uh, they used it as the countdown because it was 10 days out from opening. And uh, so that meant that pretty much everything had already been established and there was no need for art on the walls because there was already decor picked out. Um, I think this is how I, I arrived at the fuck off, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've exhausted all the ways I can be compensated, fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did my best to work my way up the chain and make connections with people that could be decorating other future facilities. Um, it has yet to turn into anything profitable, but um, I, I tried to run with it. And then at the end of the day, I did tell them, look, um, you know, it's not okay that you're using anyone's work without their permission. You absolutely need to ask first. Um, to their credit, they did actually tag me in the original post, both in the post itself and in the caption, which a lot of people that are thieving on work will not do because they don't want to be caught for having stolen the work. Um, but, you know, as we all say, you're not feeding your family off of that social media clout. So most people yeah. don't know how copyright works with, with photography. Yeah. And, and that, that includes that people in our true. industry. I mean, I run into this with models all the time who use my photos improperly. And, you know, I don't, I don't quite say fuck off to them because I do want to maintain those relationships. That's usually, right. I, I know they're, it's just them being naive. Um, let's shift gears back to the concert photography side of things. Uh, you know, I used to I used to be in a job where I'd serve celebrities, uh, and you know they, they just want to be like treated like normal people, and they don't want you to be starstruck in front of them a lot of the time. However, 
every now and then you'll run into a, a like a band and you'll shoot a band and you'll just be like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Like I am mm-hmm. starstruck. So my question to you is uh, name a couple of bands that you've had the opportunity to photograph where you were just like, holy crap, I can't believe I'm doing this. Well, so that was 100% the smile. Um, so we, as concert photographers, you know, we, we're used to being in the barricade and having eight minutes to get in and get out those first three songs. Um, and we work under pressure and, and that's fine. 95% of the time. Um, but 5% of the time you're in front of one of your favorite artists in the entire world and you cannot remove the emotional element from that experience. And, um, for a show like the smile, it wasn't just me feeling that way. It, the, the shoot was myself and four or five other photographers. And we were all talking before the show began, as we always do. And um, we were literally shaking. Every single one of us was more nervous for this shoot than I think we'd ever been for a shoot before. Um, and we were all just sort of like putting our arms around each other, being like, get it together, guys. We've got <laughs> we've to pull this off. We've got a job to do. We need to be pros we can do this. We're all talented enough. We know what we're doing. Um, we just can't let this stress get to us. And, um, to that end, it's the only time that I've almost dropped a lens in the barricade, uh, was I, I, we walked in right before the show began. I was indecisive, thought that I had the wrong lens on, wanted to switch, tried to switch too quickly. And like the shaking of the hands, meant that I, I missed the mount when I tried to put the new lens on. Uh, thankfully, I didn't drop it. Everything was fine. But that was when I really like had to mentally slap myself and be like, all right, fuck, get yourself together. Everything's going to be fine. You know what you're doing. And then the next 10 minutes were, were smooth sailing and were fine, but anxiety-inducing. Um, and then I was able to enjoy the show afterwards because I knew that I did get the shots that I loved and that I was hoping I would get. And then you knew that you executed the job because they shared your uh, shots on their Instagram feed. Yeah, that was that was the true cherry on, on top for sure. Right well, one more subject I want to talk about today. Washington, D.C. Um, a lot of people don't think about the fact that it does have an incredible music scene. Uh, arguably one of the top five most, um, uh, most important American musicians came from there, and that is Duke Ellington. You have people like uh, the punk rock scene, Bad Brains, uh, Ian MacKay with Minor Threat and Fugazi. Uh, I'm more in the electronic side of things these days, so, you know, Deep Dish, Thievery Corporation, come from there. Uh, Bob Mould, alternative music, Bob Mould, Henry Rollins, the list goes on. Uh, How important is it to you and, and how much does it mean to you that you get to tell the story of the Washington, D.C. scene. Yes, I know that a lot of it is people coming from out of town, but how, how important is it to you that you get to do this? I mean, that's, in, that's incredibly important to me. That is the heart and the soul of my position is being able to uh, maintain, expand on, and share the history of these venues. Um, as you were mentioning before, the 930 Club has been around since 1980, Meriwether since 1967, uh, the Lincoln Theater just turned 100 last year, and the Anthem is our newest uh, venue that opened in 2017 and is building a history all on its own. Um, 
DC is such a unique space for music in that it has all of this robust history, but the history doesn't get spoken nearly as frequently um, as somewhere like Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York City. Um, people still look at DC and they just consider it the seat of power and they don't understand or acknowledge or look beyond that for this real cultural scene that exists behind it all. Um, and yes, you can't separate the two completely because a lot of, you know, the punk music that you were talking about was all grounded in the political chaos that was around them when they rose. Ronald Reagan. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, it was all during the Cold War, the, the last days of the Cold War, too. Yep. But so to be able to, to share those stories and preserve the history of these venues and then to welcome new people into our doors every night, because as you were saying, D.C. is a fairly transient city. Um, it, I mean, it means the world to us to be able to do that and to be able to preserve that culture every night and for the artists that are coming through our rooms to understand what the stage that they're standing on means to other people and has meant to people throughout the years. Um, when you walk into our rooms, I think you can, you can feel the history on the walls and that means more to me than, than almost anything else. Awesome. Jordan, thank you for joining us today. I've got to give you the, give you that yeah give you the crowd um before we let you go i want you to just tell us uh, where we can find you online your instagram feel free to plug that here right now awesome sure thank you so much for having me um my website is uh, jgrow.be so it's just my name jgroby with a dot there at the end you can find me on instagram at jgrow.be um my twitter is jgrobyphoto and everything is is somewhere between those three locations thank you so much man i appreciate it uh we're going to call that an episode in our next episode i'm not sure what we're going to talk about i think we're going to probably have an episode about uh interviewing well we'll figure that out well i'll i'll i'll, I'll figure that out i'll, I'll drop yeah, it yeah yeah it'll be about the best duct tape to use for uh, light leaks Yes, <laughs> for the Hoga 120N. <laughs> God, that camera's a piece Yeah, we've got of so shit. much that we didn't even get to. Oh, we man. Well, we can have you on again, man. It'll be great. So, All right, that's Jordan. He is awesome. He is Washington, D.C. based. So if you find yourself at a concert in Washington, D.C., uh, at one of those venues I, uh, I listed, chances are he'll be one of the photographers there. So we thank you. 200 out of 365 days in the year chance. Exactly. Exactly. So that's it for today's episode. We will talk to you all next time and we will see you soon. And we'll likely be doing some episodes on more in-depth photography, things like gear and uh, process. So until next time you all chase light and not algorithms. We'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.